Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You may turn in your Bibles to Ezra 5. We will only be there for a little bit tonight, but you can go there to begin with. Ezra 4 is sort of a chronology of what happened initially when Zerubbabel and Jeshua had led the first group of people out of Babylon back to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. The whole of the chapter is not chronological. I told you in my introduction to the book of Ezra that it doesn't all run chronologically all the way through, but the important part for tonight of uh, Ezra chapter 4 is probably around verse 3 where it says, But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building the house of our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus the king of Persia has commanded us. But then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building And they hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So that's the point at which the rebuilding effort stopped. It ceased. And then 16 years go by until you get to the beginning of chapter 5. So the beginning of chapter 5 runs chronologically from that section of chapter 4. But then chapter 4 goes on to talk about the various different ways that the building project was countered, the way that the local people wrote to the different kings, including Artaxerxes, who came along much later. It's part of why I gave you that timeline of the book of Ezra that I gave you a few weeks ago, so that you can get some sense of how the information in the book of Ezra is laid out. Chapter 5 then introduces us to Zechariah the prophet and Haggai the prophet. So now we know where they fit chronologically. The people of Israel have returned from Babylon. The Jews have begun rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. They were opposed by the local folk who were living in that area at the time, occupying the territories and properties. And because they were so viciously opposed, they stopped the rebuilding effort, and the stoppage lasted 16 years, and so God sends them Haggai and Zechariah. And Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi are the last of the prophets that speak to Israel before we get into that 400 years of silence where God quit sending prophets to Israel Up until the beginning of the New Testament, John the Baptist appears on the scene. It's no wonder that people heard John the Baptist so excitedly after 400 years. Oh, look, God has sent a prophet. And so Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi were right at the end of God speaking prophetically to Israel, to Jerusalem, to the people who are rebuilding the temple 
And so they are introduced at this point in chapter 5, verse 1. When the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel the son of Shaltiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them supporting them. At that time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozanai, the colleagues, came to them and spoke to them thus, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? So they were asking, who is it that has told you that you can go back to work? They stopped the work for 16 years. They felt pretty good about their efforts. And now the temple's being rebuilt again. So they approach them and say, who allowed you to do this? And the answer that they get in verse 4 is, then we told them accordingly what the names of these men were who were reconstructing this building, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report should come to Darius, and then a written reply be returned concerning it. Okay, we'll get into that in the weeks to come. What we're going to do tonight is, because at this point, chronologically, historically, we're introduced to Haggai and Zechariah, I think it's only fair that tonight we go look at the book of Haggai. Now, the book of Haggai is one of the shortest books in the whole of the Bible, not quite as short as Jude, but it's only two chapters, and it's only four prophecies. But Zechariah and Haggai prophesied with such gusto, if I can use that word, that it caused the people, even without a decree from the Persian king, to start rebuilding again. Let's restart the effort because the prophecies were so convincing. Now, Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries of each other. Zechariah prophesied for a couple of years, Haggai for three months. Just four messages from God to the people, to the Jews, to encourage them to get back to work even though they were being opposed by the people of the land, even though they were being opposed by the kings of Persia, even though all these ill reports were going out about them, God sends them a prophet to say, it doesn't matter, I'm with you. And if I'm with you, then you should do this work. So tonight we're just going to read the book of Haggai. So go to almost the end of the New Testament and you'll find the book of Haggai. What did you say? Oh, did I say New Testament? Go to the end of the New Testament and you won't find Haggai. It's real close. You just got to go back one testament. And then go to the end of the Old Testament. In the last three books, you're going to find Haggai. It's a real short book but you'll find it just before Zechariah. Then my plan is to finish the book of Ezra, and as we work our way into Nehemiah, we will stop and read the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah is longer and more complex, so this doesn't seem like a good time to get into that. 
but it's a perfect time to look at the book of Haggai because you need to know what God was saying to the people to inspire them to get back to their temple building, which was the whole reason that God had delivered them from Babylon. He took them into Babylon for 70 years and then released them from their captivity in order to go back and rebuild the temple so that the worship of God would continue. So that's all introduction. We're in the book of Haggai now. As I said, it's just four short messages long and yet full of not just encouragement, but promises from God and even a bit of an eschatological bent. Both Haggai and Zechariah do this. They encourage the people right now to rebuild the temple. But part of that encouragement is what this temple is going to become, what God is going to do through this temple. Therefore, it's worth it to take the time to do the work right now. So there's also an eschatological bent to it. Zechariah even gets quite messianic about it and speaks about the return of Christ and how his feet touched the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives are going to cleave in half and everything. Haggai doesn't get into all of that. Haggai comes along right toward the end of the two years that Zechariah has been prophesying. And so there is some overlap and similar messages between Haggai and Zechariah. But Haggai just gets to it, gets to the point, does his eschatology at the end. Boom, I'm out. He's gone. We know nothing more about him. But for this moment, God is going to speak through him to the Jews to rebuild the temple. Has everybody found the book of Haggai now? At the end of the New Testament, is that right where it was? All right, Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, Haggai does this. It's really helpful. He gives us dates. He tells us when this happened. But the very fact that he says it's in the second year of Darius the king, we now know chronologically in the successions of kings of Persia from Cyrus to Darius, ultimately to Artaxerxes. Now we have some sense where Haggai fits in the chronology of the book of Ezra. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. If those names sound familiar, it's because we just read them out of Ezra. If I were putting together the chronology of biblical books, I would have put Haggai much closer to the book of Ezra because they're talking about the exact same thing and the exact same events in the history of Israel. So thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. That's exactly the problem. So he comes forward and says, God knows that you came here to rebuild the temple and then that you encountered trouble. And now your attitude is, I guess it's not time because if it were time, we wouldn't be having all this opposition. And so for 16 years, It's just laid there in that destroyed condition. They did a little bit of work, and it's just sitting there. So now God is going to say to them, well, look at it. Look at the house. Do you remember what it used to be like? Is that what it's like now? 
But you all, you're going to go back to your paneled houses. You're going to go back to the places you live. But my house lays in ruins. Does that seem right to you? So that's the opening prophecy here in Haggai chapter 1. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, what God's going to do here is he's going to say, you're working hard when you're planting your crops or when you're doing your jobs or whatever you're doing, and yet you never seem to get ahead. Gee, why would that be? Could it possibly be because I, the sovereign God, am making sure that you're not progressing at all? And gee, why would I be doing that? It's because my house lays waste. You're not prioritizing me. You're not prioritizing my worship or my commands. So I'm going to make sure that your lives don't go well. So he describes it this way. You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. I like it when God gets real logical like that. It's like, okay, okay, look at your lives. Okay, take a good look. Okay, now that you see your life and the way things are going for you, hmm, why do you think that is? Could it be because you're neglecting to do something? Well, how about you look at my house? My house is waste. Gee, do you see a connection? My house is a disaster. You're living in your paneled houses, but you're not getting any further ahead. That's because I am making sure that you do not get advanced in your own lives and continue the neglect of my worship and my house. So thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains Bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow on it. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. This is God saying, you can ignore me, but not for long. I've chosen you. You're my people. I've given you a task. And I'm not going to allow you to just rest on your laurels and not do the very thing I expect of you. I'm not going to let your life advance forward. I'm not going to let you go to work and make money. I'm not going to allow you to, to have plenty to eat. I'm not going to allow you to clothe yourself until you're warm. I'm not going to let you be comfortable as long as you neglect me. There's a lesson I think we could all apply today, can't we? It's probably not necessary that I apply it. But God, the God of the Bible, the God we say we worship, is like this. And he doesn't change. 
and he still sees himself as the absolute priority in the lives of those people, he is saving, he is redeeming, he is protecting, he has chosen. Those people are his, and he's not going to allow us to neglect him. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. And Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. That's what they were waiting to hear. When they came and started rebuilding the temple, and then they were opposed, and sometimes violently opposed, they thought, well, maybe it's not time. Maybe God doesn't want us to do it now, because if he wanted us to do it now, it would be easy. And it's not easy. It, uh, it turns out that it's going to take some hard work and sacrifice on our part. But because it's really tough, I'm going to decide that it's just not God's time. So now God says, I am with you. He's going to remind them that that's the promise he made to them when he took them out of Egypt. When he was in a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke where his presence was obvious, he promised them I'm with you. I'm going to be with you. And I have plans for this nation. And I have plans for this temple. And I'm with you through all of this. So don't ever reach the point where you think, eh, maybe God's not in this. Maybe God doesn't want this to happen right now. God's like, why did I bring you back here? I brought you back to Jerusalem on purpose to do this thing. Which you have decided, eh, maybe not. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Now you know why in Ezra chapter 5, after 16 years of the building laying dormant, all of a sudden the rebuilding began, which is why the locals came and said, hey, who gave you a decree? Who gave you a permit? Why are you allowed to rebuild? And they end up saying, it's God. We're, we're doing this because this is God's house. And and they're going to continue to fight through the rest of the book of Ezra. They're going to continue to fight it politically. 
but the people are hearing from God. God is telling them, I'm with you, and that is enough inspiration for them to do it God's way, regardless of what their enemies think, or what the world thinks, or how they're being perceived, or even what kind of opposition they run into. Nevertheless, they're going to do things God's way because God is with them. Do I need to apply that? You can kind of apply it yourself, can't you? Okay. Well, that takes us to chapter 2. I told you it was a short book. This next short prophecy is just a prophecy of, of God saying, I'm with you. Take courage. I promised you something out of Egypt. I'm going to do it. So he says this. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? So he's asking, which of you are old enough, since you've been out of the land for 70 years, since I exported you all to Babylon, which of you old folks have been around long enough that you can remember the splendor that once was this temple? I want you to remember, I want you to stir up your memory and think about what this temple was like, and then go look at what it's like now. Does it look anything like it used to? Okay, then you got your work to do. Notice also something really interesting as we go through the rest of Haggai here. Notice that God keeps referring to that same temple. It was originally built by Solomon, and then it was destroyed during the time of uh, Babylon and the incursion of Nebuchadnezzar. And now it's being rebuilt. God still calls it that temple. That's the same temple that Herod is going to eventually modify and build onto and stretch out. That's the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD by Titus the Roman general and his armies. And yet God is going to talk about this temple as having a long-reaching eschatological end where even the nations of the earth are going to come to that temple. But that temple, the stones, the rocks, the actual physical building, keeps getting destroyed. It keeps getting wrecked. But God keeps saying, that's my temple. This is the temple. No matter how many times it gets rebuilt, he refers to it as the same temple because it's the place where God chose to place his name. It's the place where God once inhabited where his spirit was where the cloud of God inhabited the temple that is the location of the worship of the Israelites that's that's that same building so when it's going to be rebuilt in the days to come which it has to be in order for the extent of biblical prophecy to ever come true when it's rebuilt in the future God's still going to call it that temple it's still a continuation of Solomon's temple of Haggai's temple, of Herod's temple, of the future temple, of the millennial temple. Of, it's, always, it's that temple because it's specifically the temple of Yahweh. So God's going to speak that way. Who was left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison but now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. 
Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all the people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is still abiding in your midst, so don't be afraid. Somebody look up, if you would, Steve, look up Exodus 19. Uh, read three verses for us, four, five, and six will probably do it. Exodus 19, I think that's what God is referring to when he says, remember the promise that I made to you at the very beginning. When I took you out of Egypt, I made you a promise, and I'm still keeping that promise. Somebody else, Tom, look up uh, Exodus 29:45, and you'll see God making this promise. I'm with you. I'm always going to be with you. And I have plans for you. I have a kingdom for you. I have a future for you. And I have not negated those promises. So God is encouraging them to rebuild his temple by telling them, all those things I ever said to you, I remember them. I'm still going to do them. Exodus 19, 4 to 6, if you'd read that, Steve. So this is a message that Moses is commanded to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Mm. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That's a great promise. Yeah. You're my people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And here he is saying, remember that promise I made to you when I took you out of Egypt? That's still good. What have you got, Tom? I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. I think that's also part of the promise that he's talking about because he says, I'm with you. That's that same promise. I will dwell with them. I'm always going to be with you because you're the people that I chose. You're the people that I brought out of Egypt and brought to this land and taught how to worship me. I gave you the prophets. I gave you the oracles. I did all that for you because you're the ones I chose. You can depend on I'm with you. And the reason they stopped building was they said, okay, maybe God's not here. Maybe he's not in this. So God has to encourage them by saying, same promise, this has always been the deal, I'm with you. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Wouldn't that be enough to kind of get you rebuilding again? One would hope. Yeah, after 16 years of sitting around, you'd be like, okay, now it doesn't matter what the kings of the Persians say, we're going to go back and start building. As for the promise which I made for you when I took you out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding. That's what Tom just read. My spirit is abiding in your midst. Abiding means staying. It is settled in your midst. I haven't left you. I'm not neglecting you. You're neglecting me, but I haven't neglected you. I'm still with you. I'm still in your midst. By the way, that's an important theological principle. The God who says, I'm with you always, even until the end, Jesus said that, 
there are going to be times in our own lives where we look at the circumstances of our lives and start thinking, well, he can't be here now. He can't be in the middle of this. I mean, look, my life's a mess. I should probably just sit down and quit working for him. I should probably just quit because he's clearly not in my midst. Well, that's what the Israelites did. Here's God declaring, I'm in your midst. I'm permanently in your midst. I'm always in your midst. For 16 years, they didn't sense it. For 16 years, they just quit. For 16 years, they threw up their hands and said, no, it's too difficult. Then God says, I'm still here. I've always been here. I made you a promise I'd be here. I'm in your midst. And that's the same God who has made promises to us that he's with us. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And yet there are going to be times when we feel awfully forsaken. There are going to be times when we think, where is God in this? And those are the times that we have to exercise the kind of faith that I keep defining as standing on the word of God and determining that the word of God is more true than your circumstances. The reason that I define faith that way over and over again is because the circumstances of your life will stand in direct opposition to God's word over and over again. And you're going to have to decide well, are these circumstances, these fleeting circumstances, these circumstances that are, that are going to happen and then burn, these circumstances, are they going to dominate my life? Or are the promises of God going to dominate my life in such a way that I stay devoted to him even when I don't sense him, even when I don't have that feeling, even when I don't have that woo-woo-woo feeling and I'm dancing on clouds and everything's good and I got rainbows behind me and the blue bird of happiness and everything's, yeah, my life is great and clearly God is for me and I'm one of God's favorite people. And what was that feeling again? Woo-woo-woo, even when you don't feel, which, by the way, that could be a, a European ambulance. We don't know. That, um, even when you don't feel it, even when you don't sense it, his word says, I didn't leave you. I didn't forsake you. So who are you going to believe? You're going to believe God or your own lying senses? Because your senses will lie to you. Because your feelings will lie to you. How often have I said that to you? The example that I keep using that I think is a, a decent example is that you can go see a movie like Old Yeller. And when the music swells toward the end and the gunshot happens and Old Yeller dies... You're going to be in tears, even though you know that didn't happen. That's a movie. That's all made up. And in fact, Old Yeller's going to get shot again in two hours. He's going to get shot several times today. He's going to keep dying and resurrecting. But you feel bad at the moment. You well up with emotion. You feel because your emotions are being manipulated because Hollywood is really good at manipulating your emotions. So should you trust your emotions when it comes to God? Should you trust your lying emotions and your deceitful heart when it comes to things like God making promises to you? No, you stand on the word of God, which declares, I never leave you, I never forsake you. So God has said to them, as for the promise which I made when I brought you out of Egypt, my spirit is staying, my spirit is abiding in your midst, so don't be afraid. And that was the problem. They were afraid. They were afraid of the people who were persecuting them. They were afraid of the people that were opposing them. They didn't like how hard it was. They didn't like the fight. And so they said, well, we'll just stop. 
So don't be afraid. If you know you got God with you, don't be afraid. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea also and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house, this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, he's just said, now look at it. It's a wreck. Remember how glorious it used to be? Solomon was the richest man in the Middle East. He was the envy of all the surrounding kings and kingdoms. And when he built the temple initially, what a masterwork of, of glory it was and how much gold and how much bronze and how much beautiful. And now it's laying in a heap. And God's promise is you haven't seen anything yet. The time is coming when I'm going to shake the nations to the point where the nations bring their wealth to this temple. Has he done that yet? yet. No, but he's going to, or else God lied. I'm going to shake the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, because the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than its former glory. And the former glory was the Solomon temple, which was plenty glorious. And God says, yeah, yeah, that was just warm up. Wait till I get the nations who bring all the gold and silver that I own anyway. And I'm going to get them to bring it all. And wait till you see what this house is going to be like. Well, we've read a little bit about it out of Ezekiel, haven't we? The Ezekiel temple is going to be a... a an unbelievable, fabulous temple. Well, God says, that's what's coming. I'm going to do that. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. Okay, so what God's going to do here, I'll just explain it to you and then we'll read it. God is going to give them a couple of examples of how sin and holiness work. And he's going to say, if the priest has a piece of holy meat, a bread or a meat that has been consecrated to God, if he has a piece of it and it's wrapped up in his, in his robe, and he's carrying it like a pocket. If some of that food happens to touch some unconsecrated food, does that make the unconsecrated food consecrated? Does it do anything to the other food? And the priests are going to say, well, no, it doesn't. Say, okay. But what if you've got somebody who has touched a dead body, and they're unconsecrated, they're not ceremonially clean, and they touch something that's ceremonially clean, does that debase the clean thing? And the priests say, well, yeah. He's going to say, okay, that's you. I'm letting you into my temple. That's a consecrated holy place. And just the very fact that you sinners are touching it is going to make it unclean just by virtue of the rules you just explained. So God's 
saying he has to consecrate. He's going to occupy. He's going to bring holiness to it. I heard a preacher years ago make a similar example that I think would be appropriate here. And I think I talked about this once, I don't know, several months ago. But he was talking about the fact that there was a dead skunk right in the front of his house. That's right, I went for dead skunk tonight. Uh, There was a dead skunk right in front of his house, and he went outside, and he took a shovel, and he was getting it out of the road because every car that passed kept hitting it, and it smelled bad enough as it was. And so he went out, and in order to bring some of the smell down, he poured water over it and then shoveled it off the road. And his question was, if I picked up that dead skunk and I shined a flashlight through it and some of that light that shined through the dead skunk touched you, would it hurt you? Would it it harm you? Would you mind? Would you care? And the answer is no, because light remains light. I think it's one of the reasons that Jesus refers to himself as the light and the light of the world. And so that light going through a dead skunk carcass could touch you and, and it would still be pure light. No harm. He said, but what if I poured some water through the dead skunk, collected it in a glass, and then brought it to you to drink? Are you okay with that? I'll pass. I'll pass. I'm good. Not thirsty. Thank you. Why is that? Because it touched the dead skunk and it made the water, which was good water before, It made it now impure. Nobody would want to touch it. Okay, well, that's sort of the kind of example God's about to give. That holiness remains holy. It doesn't transfer that holiness to other things it just touches. It remains holy. But sinful, debased things, corrupt things, touch holy things and corrupt them. Okay, let's read. Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and he touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, or wine, or oil, or any other food, will that other food become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will they become unclean? And the priest answered and said, yes, it will become unclean. Okay, those are the right answers. So he says, then Haggai answered and said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there." It's all unclean. In other words, even as you're doing the work of rebuilding the temple, which is going to be my holy place and the holy of holies, don't pretend that you're the one that brings the holiness. You're sinners. You're debased, and even by touching it, you're making it a corrupt, a sinful place because even the work of your hands is unclean because you're unclean. But now... Do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time, from the time you start building, when one came 
to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would only be 10. And when one came to a wine vat and drew 50 measures, there'd only be 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind and mildew and hail. All of those are destructive elements. And yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. So he's making a contrast. He's saying, through these years that you've been here, these past 16 years you've stopped your work. I've been blowing on what little you've got. I've been making sure you couldn't get warm. I've been making sure that you couldn't be comfortable. And I've even made sure that there was drought and that there was blast and mildew. And I made sure there was hail to destroy your crops. And even though it was me doing it and making it obvious, you still didn't come back to me. But from the day that you with your sinful, dirty hands lay the first rock onto my house, From that day forward, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. You see the inspiration to get building? Yes, sir. It's a good inspiration. I'm with you. I'm God. I've never forsaken you. I'm God. I made you promises back when I brought you out of Egypt. I'm God. Up until now, you've been having want and lack because I'm God. But as soon as you pick up that first boulder and start rebuilding my house... I'm going to make sure that you're blessed because I'm God and I'm in charge of all this. I smote you with every work of your hands. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind and mildew and hail. And yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward. And then God, who knows how to read a calendar, says, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider this, even though you've been through all that, even though all that trouble has come your way, is there still seed in your barn? Listen to God say, I made it hard on you, but I was faithful to you. I made it difficult. I made it rough. I'm right here and you still didn't turn back, but I still made sure there was seed. You still have something to plant, even including the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree. It has not borne fruit. And yet from this day on, I will bless you. Get to work. (laughs) Take your sinful hands and get to work and go build my temple. Fourth of the prophecies. This is where he gets a bit eschatological. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and say, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. And I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. That's the word the Gentiles, the goyim. They're the ones that are withstanding you. They're the ones that are giving you trouble. Look, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to shake the nations. And I will overthrow their chariots and their riders and their horses and their riders. will all go down, every one of them by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, my servant, declares the Lord, And I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. 
And that's the end of Haggai. As I said at the beginning, three-month period. He gave us the dates. He prophesied for about three months, and that was the entirety of his message. Go back to the book of Ezra. Can you see now, though, why it would be, after that kind of inspiration, that the people would get back to work right away? Okay, so Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. When the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were there with them, supporting them. You could read that. You could just be reading along in the book of Ezra, not really understanding the timeline and not really understanding the history and the chronology and that the fact that occasionally the book gets out of chronological order. And you would just start into chapter 5 and you wouldn't get what happened that was really important. When Ezra mentioned Haggai and Zechariah, he was saying something really important. That was the point at which God started speaking after 16 years of the building laying dormant and God defended his own house and his own right. Now, through the years, I have heard preachers use that bit of Haggai, especially the, uh, you go back to your paneled houses and my house lays waste. I've heard preacher after preacher use that to raise money. <laughs> Say, we need a better church. Whenever there's a building program, you always see that. You run to your houses and my house lays waste. And they use that to guilt people into giving. It has a context. It is about the Jews returning to rebuild the temple. And the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God chose to place his name, where the central location of God's worship is, well, that needed to be rebuilt. It was necessary that that be rebuilt. And that's the context. Yes, George. Since Marie and I have parachuted into the middle of Ezra, can you <laughs> orient us a little bit in, in uh, chronology? I gave this. I gave everybody a handout. Yeah. At the beginning, okay. that lays out the chronology you're asking about: the succession of kings, post okay. the exile. It's the same Darius. <clears throat> And then leading to Artaxerxes, the first um, decree to go back and rebuild Jerusalem comes from Cyrus. And that argument is going to come up a couple of times in the book of Ezra. But then ultimately, it is Artaxerxes, see how much later he is in the chronology. It's ultimately Artaxerxes who makes a decree to start the rebuilding again. But God didn't wait for that. Now, did... Uh, another chronology question. Yeah. Just from listening to you tonight, it seems that the exile must have ended 16 years before today's lesson. You know, 16 years before Haggai prophesied. 16 plus. Yeah. Because they come back in waves. The first wave that comes back follows Zerubbabel. And then there's going to be another wave that comes with Ezra, which is why the book is called Ezra. Then there's another wave that comes with Nehemiah. So we're still in that first wave 
of exiles who have left Babylon under King Cyrus and have returned to Jerusalem to start the rebuilding. So they've been there for a little while. They did start rebuilding. They did start rebuilding the walls and kind of putting stuff up, and the locals opposed them because for 70 years they've been out of their land, and God even providentially had a purpose in keeping their enemies there, which was to keep the wild animals from, yeah. from growing up and grass. overtaking the land. Yeah. Grass and everything. So it, and cut the grass, sure, yeah. and give each other haircuts. Right. And, <laughs> and so it was, it was purposeful on God's part to make sure that there were people in the land, yeah. even as the Jews were taken out. And they intermarried. And they intermarried, and, and, right. And they became hated as Samaritans. Absolutely, half-breeds. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no problem at all. Any other questions? Did you like the book of Haggai? We did it in one night, but yes. I think it gives us a, a good sense of the inspiration for rebuilding. So we will finish the book of Ezra, and then we will look at the book of Zechariah, and then after Zechariah, we'll get to Nehemiah, and then eventually to Malachi, and then eventually Jesus will come. I, I just, that's, I don't know what else to tell you. Eventually, we'll say, we did the whole history of the Old Testament. That's what we've been trying to do here on Wednesday nights for years and years. We started at Genesis, and we've just been doing the history of the Old Testament till we get to the end of Malachi. And we're, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We can see where we're headed now. And then we'll probably go back and look at the poetry in the writing books, which we kind of skipped over since we were doing the chronology. So there's still the Psalms, and there's still the the writings to read. Okay, that's the plan. We'll say goodbye then to the internet congregation. Bye! Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.